Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Army aviation veteran Mike Hobart, who bitcoins and is communications and marketing manager at Great uh, American Mining. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Mike. Man, thank you for the uh, intro. I, I, I was telling you just before we started recording that I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while. Uh, at least the two years since all of the tomfoolery started um, with you know the blovid virus. So it's, it, I'm pretty excited to be here, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's very cool. And I even sometimes am surprised, uh, you, you know, including my past guests have also said, you know, they listen. I even had a recent guest uh, mail me and, you know, say they want to come back on. So that that's uh, cool. You know, what, 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 what's how GNE has uh, grown. And, and maybe if you could tell us a bit about um, the work you do, I've, I've read your articles for Bitcoin uh, magazine, found your medium uh, and, and your Twitter feed is an excellent resource. And if you <laughs> tell us you. a bit. Tell us a bit about uh, your background and what you do. Yeah, so um, as far as background goes, I'm kind of a, uh, uh, I don't like the terminology or the turn of phrase, but it's probably pretty accurate for myself as far as a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Um, because I got a bachelor's degree in exercise and movement science at University of Northern Iowa, but then I also attended the Army National Guard, as far as the aviation side, was really more closely to Air Force than it is Army. And um, I was a neutrolics, an aircraft neutrolics specialist, which basically just meant that I was a uh, hydraulic specialist for specifically Blackhawks and Chinooks. Um, and that, I mean, that was that was a, a lot of fun. That was actually my my stint in the Army was where I got exposed to the actual value of geopolitics, because um, the base that we were deployed to. I found out that one of the main reasons we were holding on to it was because the base was sitting right on top of an oil reserve. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really more of like all of my background has led me to just having an appreciation and real drive for understanding complex mechanisms and relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And, um, I mean, I, I thought maybe one place to start would be, um, I saw your Twitter image, which says great resist instead of great reset. And maybe uh, to get your thought on uh, Cobra Commander Klaus Schwab's project, <laughs> which uh, everyone is talking about these days. The uh, the funny thing is, is I bought both of his books to try and understand um, what was going on. But if I'm being completely honest and frank, the books are terrible. Um, it's really more of like just trying to justify the whole... At what we understand is the great reset narrative. Um, I think it's a load of crap. I think it's really just one. It's 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 actually fascinating. Besides the fact that it's a load of crap, because it's it's really easily comparable, in my opinion, to some sort of Bond villain um, organization. Like if if you if you or uh, your uh, fans have seen like Spectre, for example, like 007, <laughs> it's pretty pretty terrifyingly close as far as uh the the comparisons and like and the 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 one of the things that i talk about on spaces quite often as far as like any of my followers that are going to be listening to this because i obviously i'm going to talk about it from you know here to kingdom come um the the thing that i've identified is that as far as what we refer to in the bitcoin community as normies or just people like just normal average day people um, I think that what has happened is Hollywood has produced this kind of desensitization to like what actual evil and villainy is possible in reality. 
And so when Hollywood pushes it so much, they think that it's only an aspect of Hollywood and they think that something like this couldn't exist in reality, which as far as like some of the things I've seen in the military, um, like there's far more evil that is capable of being done that is like pictured in Hollywood films. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, accept on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Yeah, and they've been buttering us up uh, in Hollywood, making the bad guys look like good guys. Everyone from Joker uh, and, you know, trying to convince us that the bad, the villains are actually uh, good guys. And um, <laughs> l- l- let's get into the economy. You know, before we get into Bitcoin and crypto, get your sort of a big macro uh, overview of where the global economy is. You've written some interesting stuff on Bitcoin Magazine. You have the Declaration yeah. of, of Monetary Independence. You've written uh, a lot of people know, you know, listeners that I my take is my brief quick take is that we are like in a hundred year storm, a 1930s, 1940s moment, sort of in the midst of a cyclical imperial transition and, and revolution that often involves, you know, war and economic collapse and the establishment of a new system. You know, Bretton Woods we had that seems to be ending. Uh, we're seeing, you know, military conflicts across the uh, space uh, globally, crazy inflation, energy crisis, you name it. And so maybe to get your sort of take, uh, a big view, what, what's most important for you, uh, economically speaking, right now? Yeah, I would. Uh, that, then the funny thing is, is that, like, I self-identify as a Bitcoiner and, like, we'll talk about it later. But, like, the funny thing is, is that I'm not different from a lot of my colleagues in the space i'm not necess- i'm not ignorant to the the, ma- the machinations of macro i think macro is far more important um so like as far as like what's going on with like the geopolitical realm um i've been i haven't been watching the ukraine russian thing for very long but once i caught wind of it um I was extremely concerned. I actually got pretty, probably arguably too sucked into what was going on over there. Um, and if, if I'm not touching on the specific question that you had, just like reel me back. Um, but what really, really drew me in was following, I believe it was just briefly before that on February, I want to say 4th or 6th, something within the first week of February where Russia and China had their official announcement that they were going to be working together as far as energy and everything goes and that like 
that really kind of like blew my mind as far as like how things were going to be changing. Um, because from what I understand, as far as history goes, the the two like while they're two like communist parties, they've really really butted heads against each other, which makes sense. I mean, they're they're going to be two individually driven, large, powerful entities, and they like neither one of them wants to submit to each other. So, um, but then at the same time, like as that's been disrupting a massive portion of the oil and gas, the global oil and gas kind of like very, very, very efficient, but very not resilient or fragile, just like the the whole economy in the US was disrupted with like COVID and we shut it down for two weeks. We thought everybody, everything would be fine, even though like our, our supply chains were literally designed to only have enough food for three days in our, in our metropolitan cities. It's literally the same thing happening with oil and gas. And now it's like reverberating across the planet. And it's also disrupting the, the food systems. And because everybody's food systems and oil and gas systems are getting disrupted, which are also disrupting, you know, supply chains and everything else. Um, we've also, like, from what I have been watching of the U.S. for the last couple of years, is that because we're in a, such a globalized world and because this global supply chains are getting disrupted and because China's doing a bunch of weird stuff with as far as like zero COVID policy goes, which is extremely stupid. And I think we all agree on that. Um, and with how reliant on China's manufacturing and, and shipping we are as between like Germany and the U.S., like all of these factors playing into, it really comes back to the U.S. being extremely fragile. And that's from and like the article that you mentioned with the geopolitical phase transition. That's where I think that the U.S. is going to fracture into its own kind of like not necessarily a civil war, because I don't think the population is ready for that. Um, the U.S. population is. I think the rest of the world would very much agree is extremely entitled and very complacent with a lot of different aspects. Like um, it was projected in one of the articles that I wrote for Bitcoin magazine, I was talking about health and, and uh, nutrition. And it was projected by the national Institute of health by 2030, that 70% of the population was going to be like at minimum overweight, if not obese. Um, and we're at a point now where I think, it was 10% of the population is um, prescribed anti or antidepressants. And then I think is something close to that is also like maybe, maybe it wasn't 10%, it might have been 3% of the population is also like diabetic. So like, like the, our, our, like the U S population is not prepared for, for civil war. So that's where I argue that it's going to fracture into like two or three different trade federations where the oil and gas and food sectors are going to largely be the dominant ones. And if anybody has like studied geography or like, you know, gone to high school or looked at a map, um, the majority of the food and energy producers are in the central portion of the U S which is also where the Mississippi plays a huge role in shipping and industry. And I, I I've ranted for quite a bit there, but like I think that that's going to really determine where a lot of the power goes because those states are also Republican. They tend to be. And the U.S. is going through a kind of um, midlife crisis right now where a lot of the population that was largely Democratic, which used to include me, I was raised in a Democratic family and I was raised in a Democratic city in a relatively conservative state in the United States. And there's been a lot of people like that are my friends and family that have really kind of they've discussed with me how like they are kind of they're extremely conflicted because like the decisions that have been made the last couple of years go completely against what they know should be done and what is right. Um, 
So I think the U.S. is headed for a, a red wave, like a, quite a few of us think or hope. Um, and if the U.S. doesn't, I think that there's going to be a lot more um, discomfort and unfortunately pain ahead of us. Yeah, you t- you touched on a number of uh, interesting points there, and um, th- especially the idea of a second civil war. I've had a number of guests on GNE as well as in my TNT radio show. Actually, yesterday on TNT radio, I interviewed Alfredo Luna, former Marine and um, a police officer who was just he's being uh, he was raided by the feds. Uh, he's out on a quarter of a million bail, and they're trying to like oh. basically set him up for for like social media posts as some domestic uh, extremist, and he even agreed that he doesn't think there's going to be a civil war. It's more like optics. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the, like the media is trying to create this image of a, a civil war. And Joe Dolio of Tactical Wisdom, who I've had on my TNT radio show, uh, he also sort of thinks along those lines that we won't get to full-blown civil war. It's more like optics and stuff. But um, I guess we'll have to see. And, and maybe to get then your thoughts on, uh, you know, the crypto and Bitcoin space. Uh, I talk. I, I have guests from all perspectives on crypto and and Bitcoin. Um, you know, I'm 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 just learning from everyone. I I don't know the answers. You you may have noticed that I'm a bit kind of uh, fearful of uh, Bitcoin taking us to this cashless society and uh, social credit CBDC world. But I'm still. Uh, I mean, I'm talking to everyone. I'm trying to learn from everyone. I I don't know. You know, I'm just I'm open to everything. And I mean, that's the wise approach. Yeah, and so maybe if you can sort of give us, you know, what's uh, are, you know, are you a Bitcoin? Uh, you know, I've talked to Mark Yeftovich, um, Paul Rosenberg, Cypherpunk, you know, a, a number of folks. And w- are you like a Bitcoin maximalist? W- what's your kind of big picture take on on crypto and Bitcoin? Because I know they're separate uh, things. Uh, and then, yep. uh, you know, f- from there going forward, h- how do you see? Because everything's evolving now. We're in this kind of state uh, where we, we don't know what's going to happen with crypto and Bitcoin. And so, yeah, you, you, wherever you want to go from here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I. I, I do, I do, I would say that I identify as a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, but in that regard, I'm not somebody who only puts money in Bitcoin. I don't see Bitcoin as the only like investable asset. I think that's ridiculous. But at the same time, right now, I don't see much that is worth putting my money into other than cash and Bitcoin. Like that's like, I'm not going to put it into bonds because the US government and a lot of like other governments across the world are proving that they like, you just like they're not worthy of that kind of trust, because if you're going to put your purchasing power somewhere, you have to trust that they are going to do something good with it to the point of where you're not going to lose your purchasing power. Right. Um, and we just like the U.S., these governments think that they're just going to print and print and print and print their like the, the currency away and think that everybody's going to trust them for it. Like that's ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I also don't necessarily think that we're gonna we'll be i think we're transitioning to a cashless society in the sense of like fiscal cash like physical cash going away but i actually foresee a future where there's a likely possibility that the u.s co-ops the bitcoin currency to strengthen the u.s dollar itself um because a couple years back uh i think a lot of people have either forgotten or just didn't see it a couple years back uh the FDIC was actually looking at establishing rule sets to allow banks to custody Bitcoin on their reserves and on their balance sheets. And there hasn't really been much that has come out since that announcement of like they're working towards it. Um, So if there isn't an announcement, that doesn't necessarily say that there's good things, but it doesn't say that there's bad things coming out either. Like to me, it just says that they're still deliberating, trying to figure out what they want to do. 
Um, because at the same time, um, we could all, I think a lot of us would argue that there's been a lot of institutional adoption. Um, and at the same time, if you're going to like identify that, then you it would also behoove the individual that's considering all these dynamics that if big money is getting into it or is interested in it, then like, and big money largely steers politics. Um, it's very unlikely that it's going to go away. Um, and then at the same time, I also wanted to touch on, which I, I, I briefly touched on with, with you sharing your points and your approach to it. Um, staying skeptical of Bitcoin is the smartest thing that anybody can do. Uh, that's how a lot of us came to Bitcoin. Like that's how a lot of us became Bitcoin maximalists. Um, we didn't trust it. So like we, we like whenever we encounter somebody that says they don't trust it, it's like, you shouldn't like, by all means, look into it, dig into it, like really try and pick it apart because that's like, that's the whole point. That's the whole point to any open source technology. Right. Um, however, listening to both Doomberg and then your podcast with, was it, I can't pronounce his name correctly. Is it Ian? Is it Ian or Lane? Oh, that was, uh, Ian Davis, yeah, from the UK. Yes, yes. Um, the the and this is where I tweeted at you uh, and sent you a DM to to try and like get on here and talk about it because and this is where I hope we can have some back and forth. So the 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 funny thing is that the things that uh, yourself and Ian discussed in that particular podcast of like the necessity of like maybe not necessarily a new currency but a more like technologically available like more trustworthy, maybe decentralized, but decentralized usually comes as a byproduct of trustworthiness and security. Um, Bitcoin provides all of those without needing to trust one world, one specific world government, because I think the rest of the world is coming to the same conclusion as much of us Bitcoiners is that you like, we can't necessarily trust one entity with the control of a money. Because if you, if you're a student of history, you look back, yeah, they might make promises early on, like whatever government or individual or corporation, like they'll, they'll they'll make promises of honor and trustworthiness early on. But that like those incentives always get tainted going in, like going into the future. Like it's almost a guarantee that humans are going to game the system so that like whoever's at the top benefits more than the, than the rest of the system. Um, and that's and Bitcoin provides all of these, like a lot of these answers. But uh, I think that there's a lot of. I don't want to say unfair or immature, but there's a lot of resistance mixed with an aversion to just looking at the system with a clear and fair lens. I think if a lot of people that have the like that have the, the same drawbacks that uh, you and Ian brought up, if you were to look at like the whole Bitcoin system, how it operates and really try to understand how, like how everything, like all the incentives work very, very, very symbiotically together to provide something that all participants benefit from. Um, I think you guys might be surprised with the conclusion you come out with. Yeah. Just to uh, add, uh, I guess a, a few points you made, like you said, uh, don't trust Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I don't trust the U S dollar or, or any <laughs> currency on the planet. I mean, first of all, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. Or you know, probably most you know, any all banks I don't trust even you know as institutions. Yep. Um, you know, I guess gold and silver, f physical that you hold, I would trust. But again, that can be 
stolen or robbed from you. So really, well, I mean, even even then, you need the technology to verify that it's like actually like a, like a full ingot or a full bar. And are, are you going to spend the te- are you going to spend that money to have that technology? I'm not. Yeah, I mean that that requires again uh, energy and money to verify if the gold and silver that you know that that you want to buy or whatever, uh, or someone wants to buy from you. Uh, to, to verify. So yeah, I mean, those are interesting points. Uh, Doomberg, who I had on uh, with my previous podcast, uh, or I think it was my previous. He's always podcast. good to chat with. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm kind of lost in space and time. But um, <laughs> he, he said, you know, we don't need a new currency, you need a new government, which I thought was an interesting point. And as well as what you mentioned earlier, I've entertained that, you know, I keep that scenario open as well of the US government. Um, I forget how you put it, you know, running with Bitcoin, uh, on the back of that and, and using that, let, let's say, because we've got the U.S. dollar, the world reserve and kind of maybe yep. remaking itself as, you know, the, the new digital Bitcoin uh, currency world reserve. I, I can see that scenario uh, as, as well. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what um, I mean, you make so, some good points for us to look at the, the structure of uh, Bitcoin. What, what do you make of some of the right now? It looks like we're in a Bitcoin, maybe bear. Uh, market or, or crypto overall we're where, in everything bear market right well, now. well yeah i'm sorry yeah, yeah i agree everything bear market but <laughs> except, like, except for commodities of course like oil and gas obviously yeah but uh on, on the bitcoin and crypto front it seems like there are many uh there seems to be a cleanup process like any organism goes through where you know the dead cells are, are brushed away where we've got these yep. exchange, uh, bitcoin crypto exchanges collapsing many of them fraudulent or doing stupid stuff and so many are collapsing um some were corrupt then we've got like governments looking to tax crypto some of them some not uh then they're looking to regulate uh cryptos um or make them flat out illegal i i think russia recently made uh cryptos not uh legal and so you know are these growing pains well you know what does this sort of portend for the future of of the space i think uh this would be what a lot of the community discusses as the then they fight you stage. Um, the the interesting thing with co- with countries trying to quote unquote ban Bitcoin in particular is that since 2017, um, particularly between China and India, I think both countries have tried to ban Bitcoin at least a dozen times a piece, and every single time they've quietly admitted failure. Um, even even so the funny thing is is even with within China within their borders as far as ba- banning bitcoin mining in specifically um there's been a lot of reports of like just underground mining continuing just being distributed and hidden across the country and then um if i don't know if you might not have gotten the chance to see it but then there was also i believe over in Iran um if it wasn't Iran it was one of the neighboring countries where uh, they had been kind of like squashing in on uh, on bitcoin mining as well because of all the power outages and stuff that they were dealing with blaming bitcoin miners which is were pretty much calloused up to this point um the funny thing is, is they found out that there was chinese companies within Iran that were mining bitcoin off that power so I, I mean, I, they can always be, you know, operating individually and not under the guise of any sort of like CCP-esque um, influence. But it's still it just goes to show you that like a government can try and ban it. But like the people, if it's if the people want it and if the, like, if the people are easy, to, if it's easy to use for the people, which it is, um, 
they're going to find a way to use it because they're going to find a way to benefit from it. Like tons of like every single participant across the globe can benefit from using Bitcoin because of the fact that it's um, if you custody it properly, which a lot of us Bitcoiners will like we will move mountains to make sure or trying to help anybody that wants to understand it. Um, if you custody Bitcoin properly with like taking custody of the 12 to 24 word seed phrase and you protect it and you really, really protect it and make sure that those words are like not saved on a computer or something like that. Um, it, it gets to the point of where it's relatively inconfiscatable. Like it's not like a, having a bank account or a Venmo account or a PayPal or really anything else out there to or even having a, a physical vault. Like, if, it, if you have funds or value or wealth stored in any of those mediums, somebody can forcefully take it from you without your consent. That's that's like the real life changing aspect of Bitcoin. And and you mean, I mean, pretty much you're talking about cold storage, right? Yeah. Yep. That would be correct. So you, you've done some research on it. You like you don't give yourself enough credit, but. I, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit familiar. I mean, my only concern as a U.S. citizen myself is um, I, I've gotten some crypto uh, or let's say Bitcoin uh, donations for the podcast. I mean, n- not so many. So I've, I've got some. Uh, and I mean, yeah. I'm just kind of the, the kind of person where I, I've used uh, I use an exchange. I, I should probably listen to your advice in the cold storage. But I, I use what I think is so far a pretty good uh if, if there's if there's the need to rapidly monetize it though, like I like I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that anybody that has Bitcoin, if you have any sort of amount of Bitcoin, you shouldn't have it near an exchange. I've got some spread out between cold storage and exchanges. I'm I'm not I'm not here to ostracize anybody. But yeah, my, my, I mean, just my, my point is, my, as a U.S. citizen, like I'm also a Mexican citizen. So if you're if you're a Mexican, I guess so far if you're using cryptos. Uh, I think there's no law where you, you have to report it, the, the taxes to the Mexican government. But, uh, you know, I've reported to the uh, IRS. My, my thing is I, had, I haven't liked to spend it because, you know, if I buy a book in Bitcoin, technically, I suppose I'm supposed to then report, you know, the gain uh, to the IRS and, and whatever. And that's just so cumbersome. How does yeah. one how does one deal with that? I mean, I know there are these like automated, I, um, you know, they're built into crypto exchanges where then they can figure that out all out when you do your taxes. But, you know, how does an American deal with this? I, this might be changing because I think there are new bills that are saying uh, anywhere from 50 to $200. Uh, if you make a purchase up to 200 bucks with Bitcoin, you don't have to do any of that. So these are maybe yeah. uh, uh, new bills uh, in the pipeline. Uh, but, you know, yep. how, how do you deal with uh, this as a U.S. citizen? The funny thing is, is that obviously I'm going to take take the steps to like just be as lawful as possible when it comes to, uh, you know, reporting your taxes and all that stuff. But uh, the, like the funny thing is, is that in my the way I view it is that it, it might be cumbersome now. Um, but the IRS is going to get weighed down with so much work that they're like they're like there's there's no conceivable way where they're going to like think that they can hire enough people to track down and actually it'd be worth their while to track down and make sure that they're getting every little pittance of us dollar, like taxes off of every, even the $200 purchases, like it, like, because then you're going to have to run it back and you're going to have to make sure it was that price at that point when you did spend it. And then you're going to have to like feel, figure out the taxes there because like, and the funny thing is, is that this is, 
precisely why foreign exchange is such a pain in the ass and like no and like basically no u.s citizen has had to deal with it and nowadays like if you get a if you get like a travel credit card like i have myself like if you go over to mexico or the, or europe and you like make some purchases there the this like the the back end system just handles the the foreign exchange and they just charge you an extra fee on top of it to make it easy so i'm i'm like i would not imagine that there wouldn't be something like that going in the future soon anyway either yeah that, so that, I, that, I and 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 this goes back to like my exercise science background i'm not i'm not really afraid of a little extra work up front for greater gains in the future you know what i mean yeah that's a good point and i mean I have no idea how how this stuff works. Even even the accountants that I you know that the, the people I hire to to prepare the taxes sometimes they're struggling with it. It's like if if I've got no idea how to figure this out and they barely do. I mean, imagine uh, the IRS. <laughs> so it, it, it kind of makes sense that they're going to have to figure something out soon because this is really uh, the way we're in this gray area where it's just untenable. Uh, and as I said, th- th- they seem to be making some advances with you know saying okay, you, you buy a pizza or a book up to two hundred bucks. Just you know, forget about it, uh, and and, then we'll and, see what, mm-hmm. and to that point, like when it comes to like the technology has clearly shown that it's not stoppable. It's a lot like you know the internet or the smartphone. There was a lot of I rem- like I was I was I grew up like I was born in the nineties, like the very early nineties. I were like I experienced the transition to smartphones and like the adoption of Wi Fi and like growing through dial up, like. There was a lot of there was a lot of aversion to a lot of that technology, and they like uh, they really tried to stifle it. Like something as simple as like in the schools of like preventing kids from texting on their phones. It's like you can try and resist it all you want, but people are going to find a way around it. They're going to use it regardless of what you say, and like you can keep trying to fight it, or like if you can't beat it, just join it and work with it. And that's, in my opinion, that's eventually what's going to happen. Yeah, that sort of takes me to the next point: is the the cashless society, which is basically, well, CBDCs, and there are uh, a few. Ooh, here we go. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I've talked to Mark Yevtovich and um, the Canadian. Uh, he's he's got the crypto capitals bomb thrower newsletter. I've talked to him twice in TNT Radio and Paul uh, Rosenberg, Cypherpunk, who are very much pro crypto and Bitcoin. But they they had interesting thoughts that I mean, there are different theories where we might go to uh, just the pure CBDC cashless, no no physical cash, and it's just CBDCs. With the central bank, you know, they're, they're, one of their goals is to get rid of commercial banks, and then if again they can make money, programmable, expire. If you don't behave, they just shut off your account. Like you know, they yep. take, they banned my PayPal in April, or uh, the Canadian truckers are in China, whatever. Um, but you know, Mark Yevtovich, and I think I, I can't recall, but Paul Rosenberg also had maybe a similar view where we might have like a bifurcated system where CBDCs will exist, but also that Bitcoin and crypto will exist, and that'll be kind of like an off ramp where. Um, you know the CBDC CBDC world will be totalitarian, but that it will coexist with this parallel structure that will give uh, freedom to people who use it. What's sort of your vision going forward? Because it really seems like they're they're trying to push us into this. You know, in Ireland recently, in, in rural Ireland, yep. they tried to uh, eliminate cash in the rural banks. Seventy rural banks. People pushed back, and for now, they said, "Okay, okay, just kidding." Um, but you can you, you can see you can see in many cr- countries across the board, you know, cash is disappearing. They just reported it in the UK, like in five or ten years, uh, cash is, is going to be gone. ATMs are shutting down. It's too costly. It, it transmits, you know, infectious disease. Blah blah blah. And so, uh, just you're, you're, they were they were burning like they were burning pallets of cash in China because it was spreading COVID. I remember that. 
and probably and so, testing it. But, yeah, but you, 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 your thoughts on this, if, if, if you just extrapolate, how, how do you see this? Yeah, um, I agree with um, Rosenberg, and I can't remember the other guy's name because I can't pronounce it. Um, can you say it one more Mark, time? Mark Yeftovic. Yeftovic? Okay, yeah. Yeftovic. Um, between Mark uh, and then Rosenberg and then also Doomberg, they all said things that I agree with. Um, CBDCs are largely extremely dangerous. Um, to to Doomberg's point specifically, like I don't like if they successfully implement them, I don't think there will be any way to get away from them. Like regardless of whether you're rural living or not, because um, the scary part is is that they will absolutely try and wrap up CBDCs as some sort of benefit, as some sort of like moral benefit to society. They'll wrap it up as like, oh, you can make your tax payments easier, your health insurance payments easier, rent, or whatever garbage that they spew out. And then they'll like, when they first roll it out, they'll roll it out with incentive, like crap incentives, just like they did with the vaccines in the US. They'll try and give you like an ounce of weed or like a box of fries or whatever to try and convince people to use them. And if you've read um, The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, specifically, I believe is either chapter six or seven, talks about how um the rollout of a new fiat currency they're they're gonna roll it out to people with discounts by like devaluing it early so that people are more like more likely to use it for example if you pay with rent you get like a 30 percent discount something like that like they'll make it very desirable for the populations to adopt but then once they reach a desirable saturation point then they start to ratchet up like the cost or the value of it um, to where those discounts diminish and disappear, and they try to suck all the power out of like the the competing currency. Um, at which point, this is where we get into what Doomberg and I like share opinions on: is that once they get to that point, they can use it just like a social credit system in China. Like they, if it's fully programmable, you could do something as far as jaywalk across the street at the wrong time of day, and they're like, "Oh, you can't buy food for the next forty eight hours." Like it sounds extreme to people and it sounds like something that they wouldn't do, but look at what Canada's doing right now. Like, did you read the leaked documents as far as like having a uh, environmental control agency that, uh, that Doomberg like brought up with like, there's lit- legitimate interrogation rooms in there and there's biological testing labs like a, in an armory. So you can't, you can't tell me that these countries and these groups of people aren't thinking about like using these draconian and oppressive measures and that they wouldn't do something with like something as simple as a as a lit- like a hundred percent programmable money to where they could see every single. And this is where it gets to the scary part too for anybody that's seen Eagle Eye, uh, the old Shia LaBeouf movie back in the day. If they can see and track every like byte of data to the point of like where they can see your purchases and like record your purchases and your geolocation, like your geotagging over time. Not only do they get your routines figured out. But then they can also figure out your purchasing routines because we all have particular products and brands that we like to buy from. And we'll go to the same spots in every grocery store, pick it out and get out. And when you get to the point where you can predict people's actions, you can also steer them, which if anybody was paying attention to the last two years is precisely what they tried to do. Like they tried to steer in the entire global population to take a jab for from a product and from companies that had not proven that they were trustworthy. I'm pretty sure that Pfizer is one of the most heavily fined pharmaceutical companies in existence. And we're taking something, we're taking something from a technology 
from a com- from a company that is producing a technology that is not thoroughly trusted or like understood and putting it into people's bodies and people are just like taking it at like face value. It's like, oh yeah, I trust the US government or like, you know, Canada or, or Ireland or China or Russia or whatever. It's like, I trust them. It's like, what are you not paying attention? Like, like you have to be extremely ignorant and naive to like actually think that something like a CBDC wouldn't be turned against the population whenever that government entity like benefited from it. Do you think though that um, if we go down that road, that th- they would be able to, you know, outlaw Bitcoin or crypto? Which I, I don't think that's your your view. From what I gather, that th- that would continue forever to uh, live alongside it. Or, 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 or what's your view? I think that they would certainly try, um, but but the first thing that is working against them, that I think the specifically like going back to the Great Reset that we were first talking about on this uh, recording or podcast, um, this is another discussion I've had with a lot of people is that like they'll certainly try first, um, and they'll use technology to their to their advantage first. So I can't remember the name of the law, but it it goes like. Uh, in order to refute lies, you have to kind of express like 10 times the amount of effort because people will buy people will buy into lies easier because you can make a lie as desirable as you want. People will buy into whatever fantasy or dream that that lie is wrapped around. Um, like you could talk about ESG, for example, which is part of the Great Reset. Like that was that has been a lie that's been perpetuated for over 50 years. And like we've all just like aggressively, more aggressively bought into it with each passing decade until like now. Um, so when it comes to D- CBDCs, like they're they're they like again they will they will do what they have to and they'll do it like whatever they can to try and make it more desirable so that people pick it up faster. But at the same time, when it comes to technology, because like this goes back to like people asking, it's like oh well, why is, can't you compare now to like back in history? Now we have more technology and communication to where you like we're communicating with each other like across different aspects of the world, and there's basically no no time delay in communications. And so, like, when you're spreading lies, you can spread lies that much faster, but you can also spread the truth equally as fast. You just have to have the truth condensed down to a point where you can make the arguments fast enough to where the the lies don't just fully suppress and squelch out and take out all the oxygen in the room. That's going to, that will be the hard part. And then that's, and the interesting thing is that, like, that's largely where, I hold the position that the Bitcoin community has been a part of like the massive resistance to these like vaccine mandates and everything that has been happening across the world because I've been in the community since 17 and we were one of the only ones that I identified now that it could very possibly have been that I was just in an echo chamber at the time, but we were one of the largest, like most potent communities online and people like mainstream media and governments were complaining about us ad nauseum. We were one of the only people specifically on Twitter and online that were talking about all the ridiculousness of like what was going on, like talking about how like the fact that the science doesn't say that like these vaccines are working. So why are they trying to like push these lies to say that they are or like all these virologists and epidemiologists across all these different podcasts and platforms are saying that this is a bunch of crap and there's something weird going on. So like. And then that just and that's just to like uh, justify my whole point of like when it comes to disseminating information and truth and fighting lies, like it just takes enough people that a have the the brevity to make the arguments 
well, like well worded or well said or well put, but it also takes uh, a particular population or a particular group of the population to just like we stick our like we dig our heels in and just say no. So I, I, I have a lot like I like people like I people online specifically on Twitter like I talk about all these negative things happening between oil and gas like the food crises, the energy crises, the water crises, because like the Middle East is going through significant water crises right now. Um, and like in the U.S., everything west of the Mississippi has basically been in a drought all year. And this in the deep southwest has been in a drought for the last decade. Um, everybody thinks that I talk about this doom porn. Like I like I enjoy just like talking about doom porn. And it's like, no, like I'm, I'm very and I'm not a cynic either. Like I don't trust people. But I definitely like buy into potential. Like, there's a lot of hope out there. You just have to be be first. You have to be able to tolerate identifying the problems first. Like, if you don't identify problems, then you can't identify the solutions either, right? I just wanted to add that in there, just so like your listeners don't think I'm just some like doom porn like fanatic. <laughs> no, I get I get considered that uh, as well. But I just look at <laughs> try to look at things as they really are, and I don't like to have hopium. Um, and we have to strive to have a, a balance, which is tough at times. And um, j- just to add, you, you talked about them giving us discounts to go with the social, uh, with the digital currency in the future. You know, one, one l- little thing which I thought was a forerunner was, you know, in, in, in grocery stores across the planet. I mean, it's in the U.S., Mexico, uh, where I live, and, and Kazakhstan, where I used to live as well. Um, the, the little member cards, right? They ask you when you check out, oh, do you have a... The, the membership card or discount card and then something yeah, rewards they, they, yeah rewards cards they give you a really good discount i recall in kazakhstan i calculated it was pretty good i've ne- i've always refused them because yep. uh you know if, if you buy in cash no one knows what you bought but if you use a rewards card uh that probably gets into the supermarket's database and then that can be sold off to anyone and and everyone i'm like and they would look at me like i'm crazy in kazakhstan when i said no i don't i don't want the rewards card and they're like Look at me like this guy's crazy. He's gonna get free money. I'm you like, get like ten cents off gas, though. Yeah, but it's like <laughs> I value my uh, privacy, and they just they can't. The average person cannot get, you know, what we're all of the stuff that we're talking about. The importance of privacy well, and, ca- and cash. To, to your to your point, you know what really opened my eyes to it was before. Like I think it was like as I was like going down the whole Bitcoin rabbit hole, probably back in seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, something around there. There was a like kind of like a horror story that I heard about where. This um, young girl, she was probably late teens, early 20s or something like that. She was, she was still in a really close relationship with her parents. And the grocery store where they, the family had this rewards card thing with, all of a sudden started sending her like baby stuff. Like, like ads or discounts for diapers and like all this other stuff. And so the, the family member, I can't remember if it was the dad or the mom, got kind of like offended or mad and contacted this company. I think it was like Target or something. And they had a discourse and everything, but then it ended up being that the, the daughter was pregnant. And because of her, her change in her buying activity, the company had figured out and connected two and two together. And they're like, oh, she must be pregnant. So we're going to send this stuff out. It's like, that should have scared absolutely everybody. Yeah, that proves the point. And yeah, and you mentioned a uh, G uh, uh, creature from Jekyll Island, G. J. Edward Griffin. I had the privilege. I've mentioned this before, uh, like a decade ago. He took me out uh, to lunch because in the late two thousands, I was volunteering on his Unfiltered News website for a couple of years, and I was passing Total through. Flex. L- yeah, it was really cool, and I, <laughs> I passed through L.A. 
and uh, uh, he took me out to lunch sort of as a that's thing, cool thanks and that was really um, cool very cool guy he's in his 90s still going strong staying healthy so um, wow that's good to hear and, and and maybe to get your thoughts on the the price of I'm just going forward the price of Bitcoin I know it's down but we're talking about these doomsday scenarios which may very well be before us um and trying to survive in them this is something yeah. i think about a lot because i think we are going into this dystopian scenario and uh, you know one thing is trying to resist it at all times always trying to resist it it's number one number two but also yep. thinking at the same time um if if we do get overwhelmed by these foreign forces by the enemy okay then how do we survive right um yep and you know, Bitcoin, people have talked uh, about the price shooting back up, uh, you know, getting your thought on, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what you think might happen there. But as well, the other scenario that comes across my mind is that even if the price doesn't go back up, if we do go into this rough scenario with the CBDC or whatever, it might not even be that it matters so much because if Bitcoin still continues, like I'm just thinking if I got, I got my Patreon shut off, my PayPal, if my bank account goes I've got nothing else. But if Bitcoin still exists, I don't really care what the price is because that will be my loophole to try to get around. Um, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. There are still people yep. hoping it's going to go back to 100 or 200,000. I mean, how do you see the Bitcoin price uh, future and, and, and you know, the, the, the road yeah. ahead for Bitcoin? Yeah, for sure. So this is, this is a really, really important conversation because there's so many, there's been a lot of people, particularly since 2020, that have gotten into it that haven't experienced like a legitimate. Bitcoin bear market. Um, lucky for me, I guess you could say luck is part of it. Um, what my timing of coming into Bitcoin months before the big bubble that got everybody's that put Bitcoin on everybody's radar, um, and then <laughs> riding through the abysmal bear market bubble that followed afterwards. Um, I'm not one of. I'm not part of that Bitcoin maximalist camp that thinks that we're somehow going to reach some sort of all-time high in the in the macroeconomic sense of what's going on right now. Um, not only do I believe that people choose food, water, and shelter over investment assets when things get tough, I think that that's exactly what everybody should be more concerned about. I think that uh, you should definitely be more concerned about making sure that your family is going to be um safe and well fed and like nourished and everything before you even think about like trying to like lean in on bitcoin as far as like some sort of um massive investment asset uh because and like a lot of us will argue this point is like there's no point in like getting into bitcoin or really any investment if you have to sell it when it's at its most discounted price um and speaking of price there's also a difference in a, in a disconnect in a lot of um classically educated circles and people that I've tried, I've tried to talk with uh, like Mike Green. Um, he has since blocked me on ever since he and I interacted on clubhouse because he didn't like that. I tried to make the argument that um, a money or a currency is basically just a direct representation of time. And that's like the exchange of value. Um, so he didn't like that. He immediately blocked me, but uh, there, I've had a lot of people like that. Um, so the and the really the reason I brought that up is that there's a difference between price and value. Um, so something can have a like, for example, like we could take a very classic example as far as like Apple or Amazon. Early on, like those companies would have been they they had a lot of value to them, but the price was low as far as their share value goes because nobody understood the value. Um, and look where those companies are now. 
Um, so that that would be my like one of my biggest points. But at the same time, back to price, uh, which you brought up a very good question. Is like, well, if like if Bitcoin is still around, like, what does the price matter? And like, really, what what the other question to ask too is like, is the U.S. dollar going to be as equally trustworthy twenty to fifty years in the future as it is right now? Um, and if it is, how much have they printed between now and then? Because if Bitcoin's a hundred thousand dollars, but like it costs a hundred thousand dollars to buy a gallon of water, like what does that really matter, right? Um, and I don't think that that comparison would necessarily be real unless we got into some sort of Mad Max uh, scenario. If one Bitcoin equaled like a gallon of water, that'd be really really bad. Um, but I do what I will say as far as like. Cause I think part of your question, your, your question was also like, how do we like kind of like get out on the other side of it um, with, with regards to like maybe not resisting, but at least surviving to the point of where we can all flourish off all of this discomfort. Um, first things first is the hydrocarbon spigots need to get turned on like significantly. Russia has their spigots turned on. We all know that, but the U S doesn't. Um, and the U.S. is largely catering to a lot of the ESG stuff that was first more entrenched in the U.S. with the EPA. Um, well, the EPA and then individual states, which are kind of just catering to each other in a circle jerk style of motion. So and this is actually where it gets really interesting where I can plug my own company, too, is that with oil and gas, um, what a lot of the public doesn't understand. And like I've been working on producing a lot of stuff in the back end so we can start rolling it out um, as the environment gets a little more conducive to our argument. Um, when it comes to pumping out oil, there's a product that comes with it called associated natural gas, which not a lot of like the general public is understanding of this relationship because I wasn't. And if I wasn't, then I'm going to assume that most people weren't either. Um, and when we get this associated natural gas, it has to be in specific economic amounts to where these pumpers can justify either building pipeline infrastructure to send it off to be sold, or they have to be able to justify building a liquefaction facility to where they can extremely filter the natural gas and all the, because it's not like it just comes in like this perfect, like natural gas substance where you can just like, oh, hey, look, it's perfect natural gas. We'll just box it up and send it out. It's coming with men, like methane, pentane, butane, um, what's called slug, which is like condensate and water and dust. It comes with a lot of water. It comes with a lot of just like minerals, like all this stuff needs to be filtered out. And then once, and if you're trying to get it down to like liquid form, not only do you have to like filter all that stuff out, but then you have to filter as much of the water out as possible so that you can get it down to negative 214 degrees Fahrenheit to the point of where the like there isn't enough water in it to form icicles like ice with like ice crystals within the, the molecule like you know compaction itself and then you have to also have like the the facilities and the the uh the technology and the infrastructure to put it in a very compressed form to where it stays in this liquid state and then be able to transport it um safely and guess what all of that requires a lot of hydrocarbon inputs like you need the piping, you need the plastics, you need the rubbers, you need the computers that are coming along with it. Like you need a lot of oil to produce all that stuff. And at the same time, um, like just going like kind of wheeling back a little bit back to just the oil and gas relationship. There's a lot of gas that's coming with the oil that we're pumping. 
And if those companies can't afford, if they can't afford to either pipe it or, um, or freeze it, then there's, you can either vent it or you can flare it. Um, and in the U.S., uh, I think really the, one of the only states that doesn't care whether you vent or flare is Texas. There's a lot of production coming out of Texas for that reason. Um, and then there's like, for example, Colorado recently, a couple years back, had made it so that you, if you aren't flaring at a 92% combustion rate, like where you're consuming 92% of the, the gas and the methane, then you have to get out. Um, and that forced a lot of smaller oil and gas producers to leave Florida and go to North Dakota in the, in the back end basin. Um, now, this is where it gets really, really interesting, too, because even at a 92% combustion rate, it's still limiting a lot of these companies from producing more oil because like, like each well site is going to have different flow parameters and all this other stuff. Um, but if you're, if you're a site that can only economically flare it, um, then if you read, cause like they have specific, uh, it seems a little ridiculous, but they have specific diagrams to how big the flare can be as far as uh, regulation goes, uh, between these different States like North Dakota specifically. Um, so if your flare is too big, then you're flaring too much and then you need to roll back your production so that your flares with within allowable um, metrics. Now, this is where we come in at Great American Mining. So with these, what we're arguing is that with these pumpers, like these oil and gas producers, if they want to produce more oil which at these prices, I promise you they do. And the prices are just going to get higher from this point. If they want to produce more oil, but they can't. They they can't because they're limited at, at, by by flare regulations. Then use us. We take that natural gas instead of flaring it. We use it in a uh, run it through an internal combustion engine, which turns an incumbent motor, which produces electricity. And we use that electricity to mine Bitcoin off of it. And then we do like a like a kind of like a rev share split where they they can take percentage of the Bitcoin that is produced from our equipment. And they can do whatever they want with it. And like now this is where it gets really, really cool because not only are we consuming flare gas instead of just burning it, we're kind of making it like we're putting it to an economic use to where they can get a dollar amount out of it. But at the same time, they can choose whether they want to immediately monetize it or if they buy into the whole like Bitcoin is kind of like a like the future thesis and they want to like just custody it for themselves, then they can do that. They like because like this is where it gets. This is like the one of the coolest parts. This is where I nerd out super hard because like the Bitcoin asset market is twenty four seven, three sixty five. You don't need like a banker or somebody there to like be at the office for like when you want to like you know cash out. Like the market is open every single day of the year. What what market out there is open every single day of the year, regardless of where you are on the planet? There isn't one. Like. There might be some workarounds now where as far as technology and relate and like public relations goes to where they, they can kind of do that. But Bitcoin is like really the only one. And we're and it's the most liquid as far as like these cryptocurrencies. I want to puke in my mouth whenever I say that. Um, it's the only one that has enough liquid like value to the point of where it can handle a lot of these transactions. <clears throat> and then at the same time. The really, really cool part is that if these companies decide to custody whatever percentage of the Bitcoin they want to hold it, the amount of hash rate that they're bringing onto the network with the mining facility that, like, or the mining hardware operations that they put on these oil and gas positions, 
to help consume the flare. It's just helping secure their Bitcoin more because the more energy that is dedicated to the network, to the mining, to the node consumption, or the not the node consumption, but to the mining consumption, and then like to the like the node, like it's just like the more participants and the more energy that is um, dedicated to the network, the more energy it also takes to try and attack. And we're already to the point since 2017. Um, Andreas Antonopoulos has a really really good video out on the internet where he makes this argument. It's like back in 2017, there was so much energy dedicated to the Bitcoin network and so much hash rate online that no one single entity or country could afford to not only attack the network, but maintain that attack into perpetuity to where you could prevent Bitcoin from flourishing. So we're way beyond the point of like any of this, like government's going to shut it down kind of fun. Yeah, there, there's a lot there that's uh, <laughs> interesting and even a little bit beyond uh, me, but it, it sounds like one of those next level um technologies well evolutions in technology to deal with uh, kind of what I, what I was talking about before these historical transitions with yeah um, and, and then solutions now being provided to deal uh with them we're running up to uh the hour and as you said we could talk for two or three hours but <laughs> um you know i like to do an hour on gne and well you know we can have you back for further installments and um absolutely other uh you know any final the thought you wanted to get across or, or issue, uh, you know, to, to hammer home. Um, I would just say that like that relationship that I just went on that spiel with, with oil and gas, uh, I, that's going to be a very important dynamic as far as like further incentivizing, just like greater oil production across the planet. Um, and people and anybody that needs to like get more justification as far as like why we need more oil, I recommend reading fossil future from Alex Epstein. Uh, if, if you understand the argument, it's going to be a little redundant because he really hammers home a lot of the stuff. Um, you could probably read like, the first half of each chapter and run away with like the same amount of value. Um, I would also recommend that people read The Creature from Jekyll Island that you and I mentioned. Um, it's extremely important to understanding how like untrustworthy governments are and just humanity in general with regards to managing money. Um, another book that I would recommend would be Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which a lot of people that have read The Creature of Jekyll Island have also read that. Um, and then I would also recommend uh, two books that are less popular, but are like equally as important, uh, would be Fed Up by Danielle DiMartino Booth. She used to work at the Dallas Federal Reserve. And she discusses like in that book, she discusses like what she saw on the inside that scared the absolute crap out of her. Um, when it comes to like just the Federal Reserve operations. And then I would also recommend people check out the book um, Tailspin by Stephen Brill. Uh, so in Stephen Brill in that book, he lays out a lot of the problems with the U.S. as far as like what's going on between like uh, like corporate lobbying and politics and how that's distorting everything like the like the like the destruction or the rot of the American education system um monetary stuff like it goes through a lot of it and like because like and back to the point that you and i were making earlier is like you have to you have to acknowledge and understand the problems before you can like even attempt to try and fix them yeah john perkins i, I i've also interviewed him um dang seven years ago although that, that was the last interview uh, i created first the dissident thinker which was like my experimental channel and he was the last interview on that before i transitioned to geopolitics uh and empire I'll, I'll maybe i'll have to get him uh on again just real quick since you were talking um one one more one more plug too real quick because we were talking about how like families need to like survive all this stuff 
I wanted to touch on food and health, but we can touch, we can talk, talk about that another time. But uh, for anybody that's in the U S that is looking for that, like, it's good. One of the big things is going to be um, for getting through all this, like, well, it's going to be uh, animal product foods. I don't know if you're vegetarian or not, um, what, regardless of whether you are or not. Um, but so like the reason is, is that animal product foods are extremely nutrient dense and nutrient density is just going to be mean as more efficient for every dollar that you purchase. So, and that's going to be, that's in a recession or a depression, wherever we go in the future, that is very, very important. Like you don't want to waste all these dollars of purchasing power on food that isn't like that. You're not going to get every bang for your buck. Um, and one of those, one of the big ones is that we're like the, that, and Bitcoin intersect is like called the beef initiative, which is what I've been helping with, uh, with my buddy, Texas slim on. Um, so if anybody wants to look into that by all means, and then if you want to, like, if you look into it and you want to chat with him, I, I will absolutely connect you guys. Cause it's like, all of this is extremely important. Oil and gas, Bitcoin and, and food. I'm big on meat, which I think we, we, we should be, uh, as well as uh, energy and oil we can get into. Uh, I, I think we should be using a lot of oil. I, I'm, I'm more of the abiotic uh, approach that I think oil is uh, renewable, that we've got plenty of it. We should be using it because what they're trying to do now is de-industrialize, basically bring us, bring us back to the middle uh, ages. And that's going to, you know, that's going to lead to a lot of impoverishment and death, mil millions, if not billions. Like we see what's going yeah. on in Sri Lanka and other uh, countries. It's absolute insanity. I'm happy to be in Mexico where the, at least for now, the president is pushing up against that he nationalized uh the lithium we got lithium mex just created uh recently uh oh really he's, he's hanging on to the petroleum uh, and so um yeah and uh i guess uh you know where's again the best places to find you uh online uh best place is probably gonna be twitter um i spend way too much time on there uh so my my handle on twitter is at the so it's t-h-e-e -E, and then mike and then Hobart, which is it, it, like you spell my last name exactly how it phonetically sounds, H-O-B-A-R-T. Uh, yeah, I'll include the link in the description wherever you're listening or watching this. And again, thank you, uh, Mike, for coming on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me on, man. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm assuming we're going to have at least two or three more risks because you could, we could easily drag this all out for probably six hours. All right. Until next time. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, 
Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.